Welcome to Intersect, where church meets culture. I'm Josh Desch, pastor of community and discipleship at Northeast Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And I am joined, as always, by my wife, the dynamic Betsy. Hey, everybody. Betsy, great to be back with you again for another episode of Intersect. Always. Well, we've got a good one for you today, folks. The title of today's episode is Even Better Than the American Dream. And we have a guest that we will be introducing shortly about this topic. But before we introduce our guest, we wanted to set up the topic a little bit. Uh, Betsy, of course, the American dream is a phrase everybody's familiar with. Mm -hmm. Many times uh, people think about our country. They think about the goal would be to achieve the American dream. A A phrase I've often heard people say is, what I want for my life is I want my kids to have a better life than what I have. Right. You, that's that's something you often hear. So let me go ahead and, and start out by introducing the topic and ask you this question. What does the American dream mean to you? When you hear that phrase, what comes to mind? Um, I think in my mind, it means achieving a certain level of success, be it you know stability in a home with a good job, you're able to provide for your family, um, something along those lines, probably. Okay, so good. So those, and those are, those are, Good things, right? Absolutely, admirable things. You need to you need to put a roof over your head. Uh, you need to have food on the table, and of course, the desire to see your kids, uh, you know, contribute to society mm-hmm. as Christians. Most of all, to advance God's kingdom, but we also want to see them contribute to society. And so, so those are those are good things. I'll t- I'll tell you what I think of when I think of the American dream, and I guess I'm just a little more vain than you, Bets. <laughs> but I think about money owning a really nice car, Mm -hmm. having a big house, being able to go on great vacations. Uh, To me, a lot of what I imagine the average person is thinking about with the American dream is is stuff, um, possessions, uh, access to different things, the good life, um, you know, success for their kids, which often means certain jobs, that are successful jobs. I, I, to me, that's what I think a lot of people are, are thinking more broadly when they think about this topic of the American dream. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Okay. So we wouldn't say that, of course we wouldn't say that the desire to, to want our kids to enjoy good things in life that are ultimately gifts from God is not bad. But this topic, this idea of the American dream uh, can really become about consumption and self achievement and achievement mm-hmm. and name recognition. And there's a professor at Columbia University in New York City wrote a really interesting book. Bets I've read it. It's called uh, and I can't remember if, if you've read it or not. No, uh, but I, I know we've talked about it before. It's called the Real American Dream. This professor's name is Andrew Del Blanco, and he has a very interesting thesis in this book. His thesis is there's really been three driving dreams for Americans since the founding of our nation. Mm -hmm. He goes all the way back to the time of the pilgrims, and he said the very first Europeans to come to America were really pursuing religious freedom. And and so for him, he says, the very first uh, immigrants, the very first people to come to America were those who, who were seeking to be able to worship as they wanted so for him, he says the very first American dream was God, hmm. that, that God was the big vision. Of course, that wouldn't be true for every single person, and, 
But but on the whole, he says that God was the driving purpose of the first settlers of America. Then he goes up to about the time of the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln, of course, becomes president, uh, saves the Union, and he says around the time of the war, you get a a crystallization of um, America as a nation, our, our national identity becomes bigger and bigger. And then he says from about 1860 to 1960, the idea of the nation of America is, is people's primary identity. Hmm. So, so God is still there. God's still in the picture. People are still religious, you know, to different degrees. Sure. But, but at that point, he says sort of being an American, right, um, supporting your nation. Of course, you have the two great wars. Mm-hmm. Then Del Banco says, from about 1960 through to the present, the self has become the American dream. Mm. In other words, it's all about me. It's about what I want. It's about what fills up my heart. And of course, we are still living. Del Banco would say we're still living in the era of the self. But this book has, it's a very short book and only has three chapter headings and they're God, nation, self. Hmm. And it's an interesting, perhaps it's an oversimplification, but it is an interesting way to look at our country. And it does seem like for more and more Americans, certainly God is not the top priority. And it also seems increasingly like uh, being an American and, and civic commitments and those things are are also maybe not the highest priority, but, you mm-hmm. know, pursuing your own interests um, social media, your own following, oh, yeah. your own dreams. Do, do you resonate at all, Beth, with Del Banco's thesis here? I, I do. I, I see um, so much, you know, the pervasive drive of our culture is about self-fulfillment, um, you know, finding who you are authentically and expressing that as an individual, whatever that may be. And you, you can see that across so much of our culture. That's right. Now, and, and he is not a Christian, and he does not advocate for a Christian worldview, he he is simply someone who's reporting on what he's seeing. Mm-hmm. That's really a, interesting. And it's a very interesting, and, and I think he's right. Mm. Well, that's all uh, an introduction to this topic of the American dream. And now I am so uh, pleased to welcome Dr. George Murray into the studio with us today. Dr. Murray, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be with you. Um, if I can go ahead and say some brief comments about Dr. George Murray's uh, background, but before I do that, I want to share kind of a funny story of God's providence of of how we met Dr. George Murray. We always go on a family vacation to Michigan every year with Betsy's family. This is actually I've been to this place in Michigan every summer since I was three. Amazing. I think I've, I think I've missed two years, maybe. Yep, yep. So so it's so. This, <laughs> it's this wonderful Christian vacation place that's on Lake Michigan, and mm-hmm. what we always, always say to the kids is. When it's a great lake, you can't see to the other side. Yeah, I'll tell it's you. It's like the ocean. I remember the first time I went to the ocean and got salt water in my mouth. And yeah. I was like, why do people do this? Yeah. At a great lake, you can just, just go to the you lake. Can just drink it by the gallon <laughs> and you're fine. Well, it so, doesn't taste bad. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't. But but we do this every year. We do this vacation and there's always uh, different speakers that are brought in. This past summer, we had the privilege of hearing Dr. George Murray speak at uh, this summer conference that we go to every year. So we actually met him in Michigan, Mm -hmm. and then we later learned that we both live in Columbia. 
and he spoke on the book of Esther, really made it come alive for us in oh, a way honestly, that, it was that I'd never wonderful. before for me. Mm-hmm. I, I had never thought about Esther in, in the ways that he uh, shared. And really amazing um, story of God's grace in Dr. Murray's life. But I'll go ahead and just briefly share some things. He's a graduate of CIU, that's Columbia International University. And Dr. Murray, was that Columbia Bible College before it was called CIU? That's right. Did I get that right? Yep. Okay. Um, graduate BA and MA from CIU and a doctor of missiology from Trinity International University. And according to the CIU website, you have ministered and traveled in 76 countries? Actually, 79 now. 79. Wow. Okay, I've got to update the website. That's amazing. <laughs> Praise God. Okay, and you have also been a leader in a number of organizations, including the president of CIU. So we're really privileged to have you on today, and we'd love for you to share with us just some of your story, God's grace in your life. How has he directed your life? And then after we hear a little bit about your story, we'd love to engage this topic of the American dream with you. You know, this is not part of my—well, it is part of my story. Uh, You'll be interested to know that uh, I barely graduated from high school. My (laughs) grades were so bad, and I was accepted at Columbia Bible College, which is now CIU. I was accepted on academic probation. Oh, well, that gives us hope for, you know. (laughs) And then years later, I became the president. How awesome is that? That's 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 an amazing story. So it is an amazing story, and I encourage all of our students that struggle academically to hang in there because the Lord enabled me to to finish, and and, uh, I learned a lot in the process. Mm. So anyway, just a little of our background. The starting point in my real life was when I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus and accepted him as my personal savior. And interestingly, that was when I was seven years old, and it was when I was listening to the radio. Mm. So a broadcast like this has a special place in my heart because I heard the gospel and received the Lord as the result of a radio program. Mm. I was home alone. I was sick. It was Sunday night. My family had gone to church, and I was listening to a church service on the radio. And the pastor was speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, that just as Jesus came the first time at Christmas, as we call it, and lived and died and rose again, he's coming back again. And he asked this simple question. He said, if you're here in this room tonight, or if you're listening to my voice on the radio, if Jesus Christ came back tonight, would you be ready to meet him? And I knew in the depths of my heart that I was not ready. Mm -hmm. And I knew the gospel because my parents had shared it with me. And so that night, just in the quietness of my bedroom, I bowed my heart and received the Lord as my Savior. Mm -hmm. And I just always thank the Lord for that. That was, you know, many, many years ago. And um, I often wished I had a a more exciting testimony, if you want to be honest, uh, you know, like I was in drugs for years or, you know, I was in jail and then Jesus saved me and uh, and praise the Lord, he does that for people in jail and have, have drug problems and so forth. But, um, you know, just telling people I accepted Jesus when I was seven doesn't sound very exciting. But I heard a story about Dwight Moody who said, uh, who came back home one night after preaching to a large crowd and his wife was not with him at the uh, meeting. So she said to him, uh, did anybody receive Jesus tonight? Was anybody converted to the Lord? And he said, yes, dear, two and a half people. 
And she said, two and a half people? Oh, you mean two adults and one child? And he said, no, two children and one adult. He said, you see, dear, that adult has already lived half of his life without Jesus, and he only has half of his life left to walk with the Lord. And those children have their whole lives ahead of them to walk with the Lord. And when I heard that, I thought, praise God that I, at age seven, uh, was touched and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, brought into the family of God, and I've been able to walk with the Lord ever since. And Mm. it's just, so that was a starting point. And Mm. then fast forward, uh, went to a Christian college, Columbia Bible College here in South Carolina, intended only to be here for a year, because then I wanted to go to what I thought was a real school, and that was a state university. So I went to CBC just to get a year of Bible under my belt to be a better Christian when I went to a real university. (laughs) And at the end of that first year, I realized how much I did not know about Mm. the Lord, the Bible, and so I said, I need to stick around here a little longer. And it was halfway through that second year that the Lord put his hand on me for missionary service. Mm. Mm. And it was because I started reading the entire Bible and I saw throughout the Bible that the heart of God is for the whole world, especially for people who haven't heard about Jesus. And so I made that commitment halfway through my sophomore year in college to go to the mission field. And a year later, my wife Annette arrived. She was a freshman when I was a junior. And I remember the first date we had, um, I called her up on the phone. She said she'd go to supper with me. On our way to supper, on the sidewalk, she stopped me and she said, can I ask you a question? Now, we'd never talked before. We didn't know really that much about each other. Can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, do you believe God has called you to be a missionary and you're heading for the mission field? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. She said, oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I know that's what God wants me to do. And if that's not what God wants you to do, I'm not interested in getting involved. Oh, (laughs) Oh, So so she drew a line in the sand. And let me tell you, that lady has stood by my side now for 50 years. This is our 50th year of marriage. Isn't that awesome? Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we have served the Lord side by side through thick and thin. And uh, so when we graduated, when she graduated, we got married. We went to the country of Italy. As missionaries, the Lord gave us four children while we were there, and then uh, I was asked to come back after 13 years in Italy. We actually planned to stay there our whole lives, but after 13 years, the Lord brought us back to lead that mission, and Mm -hmm. I led the Bible Christian Union for 11 years, and then we merged with TEAM, Mm -hmm. the Evangelical Alliance mission, and I led TEAM for another six years, so it was 17 years of mission leadership. And then in 2000, uh, we got the call from CIU to come back as president, and I came back to be the president of CIU and served at CIU as president and chancellor for another almost 18 years and retired just uh, two years ago. Wow, praise God. And you were mentioning before we went on air today that you were involved in a radio program in Italy. Yeah, radio station, actually. Radio station. Yeah, we were there to uh, preach the gospel and plant. Bible-believing churches, Mm. and uh, we went to a province that had no Bible-believing church, no believers that we knew of, no even no Bible study group or prayer meeting or anything, and so we started from scratch, and one of the tools that the Lord led us to use was starting what I call a 
Christian radio station, but not in the way we use that term here. It wasn't a radio station for Christians. It was a radio station run by Christians for non-Christians. Mm. So our programming was very different than what you would hear in a Christian radio station here in the States. But mm. we broadcast 24-7, and I helped manage that station, and we did plant a vibrant Bible-believing church in that city, and 70% of those people that came to the Lord said the first they had any indication of the gospel was by hearing our programs on the radio. Wow. So the Lord used the radio in a great way, and I'm I'm a flag-waving radio fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, and podcasts are really just pre-recorded radio programs. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's really what they are. Mm-hmm. What, do you, would you want to give us a little taste in Italian of maybe how you would open a radio program? Or Well, or, if you want to know the truth, although I do speak Italian, and, and people say I speak it quite well, we purposely did not use any non-Italian voices on our station. So we used only local Italians so that nobody would think, oh, this must be coming from somewhere else because they could hear a little accent or something. No, it was native Italians from that region. And so um, uh, I did not speak on the radio at all. I just (laughs) ran the station, but other people spoke. Okay. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, I I took a mission trip to Razzano, which is north of Milan. So I have a... um, a heart for God's work in that country. Oh, that's great. Well, let's jump into our our topic a little bit more in depth, Dr. Murray. Um, what is your view of the state of our culture today? I know this is an open-ended question, but of course there's positives, there's negatives. I think a lot of Christians are very concerned about our culture today. Would love to hear uh, your analysis of where we stand here in America. Yeah, I remember... Um Coming back to America after we had lived overseas for the first four years as missionaries, the first night we were back, as I put my head on my pillow, I said to myself, we are back in America where want has become need, Hmm. where luxury has become necessity, Hmm. where optional features have become standard equipment. Hmm. And where even if you don't need something, you can always justify getting it by waiting until it goes on sale. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and, um, and we actually, uh, the first day we were back from being overseas for four years, we went to an American grocery store, and my wife and I had to leave and go home after we were halfway down the first aisle, we could not handle the abundance Mm. that was before us and the choices that were before us. It was huge culture shock for us. Mm. And uh, now, having said that, I've gotten pretty used to it. And, (laughs) And so if I talk about the American culture today, I wanna talk about it more in terms of us than in terms of them, you know, like Mm -hmm. saying the American culture, those Americans, because I'm an American, Mm -hmm. and I have, uh, I'm ashamed to say, in many ways been sucked in to the American mentality and the American dream, which um, I would put it this way, God is not that concerned about whether we possess things. What he's concerned about is whether things possess us. Mm-hmm. And I think the American culture and the American evangelical Bible-believing culture even has been possessed by things. Mm. And that grieves my heart. And I fight with it every day in mm. my own life. Mm. 
And my wife and I fight with it as we, as we try not to get sucked into the culture that's so pervasive around us. Mm. We've talked about this many times um, throughout different episodes on the podcast, just that culture is the air that we breathe. Yeah. And it's so easy to just go along with the tide of things without thinking critically about the values that are espoused um, behind different aspects of our culture. It's just really easy to go along with the flow. Right, right. Yeah, I've heard people say that sometimes our stuff owns us more than we own our stuff. And it makes me think of a story that John Piper tells where he met someone in an airport. They're just waiting to get on a flight. He found out the person was very, very wealthy. And the person was clearly in a bad mood. They were upset. And John Piper just said, hey, what's going on? And the person said, look, I finally have, I work all the time. I, you know, I just have this big job. I make tons of money. I work all the time. And I was so looking forward to just a weekend of relaxing. But I found out that the plane that I own has uh, a problem. So I have to fly and uh, I have to fly to, to go and oversee my plane getting fixed. And, 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 and the person was, and, and Piper just, it really just brought to, you know, how, how this man couldn't find any joy and he owns a plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that story has stuck with me. And, and that is, Bets, we would certainly, none of us are immune from that, right? No. That powerful pull to want to have more mm-hmm. and, and to um, see our stuff as, as our identity and who we are. And, and of course, there's that constant thought of, I need more, mm-hmm. or this has gotten old. Or if it's not even something material, just to achieve better status yeah, or right. um, better improve on one's reputation or whatever it may be, even if it's not a material thing, it's along the same lines. Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Murray, how do you see the American church? Of course, we're being general here. There's so many denominations. There's so many different. So, recognize the, recognizing you painting with a broad brush here. But in your travels, how do you see the American church dealing with the temptation of the American dream? I don't think we've done very well at all. And I say we because I'm part of the American church. Mm -hmm. We have not done well at all. In fact, I don't see a discernible difference Mm -hmm. between the lifestyle of American Christians and American Mm non-Christians. I see very little difference Mm -hmm. at all. And so that means we've really been uh, drawn in and uh, overtaken in many ways, by the culture in which we live. And it is a battle Mm -hmm. to uh, resist that and to realize that we need to be living for eternal values, not Mm -hmm. material values, Mm -hmm. not temporal values. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the biggest factors in the American dream, because that's what we're talking about, and Mm -hmm. the title for our podcast today is Better Than the American Dream, and I hope we can talk about that a little bit more. But the American dream in many respects, is encapsulated in owning your own home. Mm. That is a huge goal for most American families. And many American presidents have tried to make it possible for people to, you know, get loans and buy a home and build equity and all that kind of thing. And uh, my sort of simple definition of the American dream is the legitimate pursuit of temporal equity. In other words, making enough that you are okay for your earthly life. You don't have to worry about retirement and whether you're going to have enough money. You just have enough 
<clears throat> that you can make it to the last day of your human existence. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that is uh, the American dream. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's not just the American dream, it's the dream of societies all over the world. That's right. Mm -hmm. yep. and, um, and while there's nothing wrong with things, and there's nothing wrong with owning a home, and there's nothing wrong with you know buying nice clothes or whatever, the, the question is, what am I living for? Mm -hmm. And yeah. what is my perspective as to what really has value? Yeah. Which just helps us to think about we do all of these things in pursuit of control, of controlling our lives, controlling the outcomes. If we do this, if we own the home, then we'll have the equity that we need in retirement. Or if we do this, then that will guarantee a certain outcome. So we live with an illusion of control that we really don't have. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and you think about, um, you know, of course, we see on the commercials more and more. You know, people are living longer today, so you got to have enough money in case you live to be ninety or a hundred. Uh, there's the rising cost of college and these sorts of things, and so many parents are concerned: How am I ever going to pay for college? How's my child going to, uh, you know, get to college? But there are so many things that are pressing on people, and they feel like I need all these things. I. I what what will happen if I don't have them? Right. And, um, you know, Josh, you talked about, you just used the word money earlier, and that that's kind of looms big in your mind when you think of the American dream, because money is what you need to buy what you want, you know. Yep. So what my wife and I, not perfectly, but uh, intentionally have tried to do as a married couple, starting out right after we uh, married after college, we made it our goal to practice two strong biblical principles when it comes to money. The first is careful saving, mm. and the second is generous giving. Mm. Mm. And uh, by the way, if you practice both of those rigorously, you will live in tension with yourself all the time. Mm. Because you'll be saying, well, you know, I'm really being careful about saving, but am I saving too much? Mm -hmm. And then when mm -hmm. you're giving, you're saying, well, I'm really being generous with my giving, but am I giving too much? Yeah. And therefore, <laughs> yep. Yep. you know, I'm not really thinking about what I need to do for my family or for the future. Yeah. Mm. So you're yeah. going to live in constant mm. tension, which I believe is an intended biblical tension that God wants us to live with. Mm. So careful saving, and I've discovered the most amazing law of economics, and that is this. When you spend less than you make, money accumulates. <laughs> Maybe you better repeat that. I know. I, mean, I, I, I sort of wish our government leaders would follow that principle, you know, and not have all this national debt, but, but people all around us are living in debt. Yeah. Yes. And when you spend less than you make, when you live below your means... Mm. Money accumulates. So that's a wonderful principle. The other principle that I've discovered is God doesn't measure our giving by how much we give, but by how much we have left. Mm. That's Amen. why he gave the parable of the rich man and the poor widow in the temple. And, you know, these guys threw in these huge bags of money and she puts in these two little pennies, and he says to his disciples, she gave more than they did. Well, not really, because they gave these huge bags of money, and she just gave these two pennies. But he said it was more because that's all she had. Mm -hmm. And they have tons left over. Mm -hmm. So God judges our giving not by how much we give, 
but by how much we have left. Mm-hmm. That's a sobering thought. That is. is. And so so their security wasn't really threatened even when they gave a lot of money yeah. because they still had plenty left if the hospital bill came or the car broke down or the, of course, I'm anachronizing this for modern culture, but, but she was giving her security to God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her yeah. future and, to the Lord. You know, one of the things that I pray for and that I ask the Lord for is revival in the American church. And we're talking in the context of America here, and mm-hmm. we're Americans. The church desperately needs a revival. And by that, I mean the church desperately needs to be called back to total dependence upon God, mm-hmm. recognizing mm-hmm. without Him, we can do nothing. Mm-hmm. The, the truth of the matter is, without Him, we can do lots of things, and we do. Mm-hmm. But the question is whether those things really last forever. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've looked at my wife and said, you know, I don't know that we trust the Lord to the extent that we should. And maybe the only way that's going to happen if he takes everything away from us. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want everything I own right now to be taken away from me because I feel good about it. I feel comfortable. Uh But if it was all taken away and the only thing I had was the Lord, which sounds, you know, like, what do you mean? He's all you need. But, you know, we don't really live that way. We think, you know, the Lord's all I need, but I do have this house too, (laughs) (laughs) you know. And if the Lord would take it all away, and that might have to happen. It might be that we have to go through another major recession or whatever for us to get down on our knees and say, Lord, we need you because we can't do this without you. Mm. Mm. Well, we have already started to make this turn to talking about how Jesus is better. Let's let's continue to make this, Dr. Murray. What can our churches do to better communicate the surpassing greatness of Jesus and following him? The title of the episode is that Jesus is even better than the American dream. Serving his kingdom is even better than the American dream. So where do you see areas where the church could do better to communicate this to uh, believers, who many of whom are, are trapped or, or um, have different you know, areas of their life that they don't want to surrender or, or for very, all kinds of reasons? Well, let's talk about this just for a minute in terms of ourselves. What I mean by that is me and you. You're the pastor of a church. I am an ordained minister. Mm-hmm. I've been in Christian work all my life. We are Christian leaders. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the church needs to do is to have Christian leaders that model what they mm-hmm. want the rest of their people to Amen. be and do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when a pastor gets up on a Sunday morning and says to his congregation, you need to give sacrificially, that does not strike at home in their hearts unless they know he's doing that. Mm-hmm. If he gets up and says, you need to be willing to leave everything and go to the mission field, that does not strike at home in their hearts if they know that he's not willing to do that. Mm. Yeah. So we need to not only be willing, but to be practicing the very things that we're telling people they need to be experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so if we say, look, Jesus is enough, and, and just having him is, is what life and joy and peace is all about... We have to model that, and that's yeah. why I love that verse in the New Testament where Paul says, the, the missionary apostle Paul says, be followers of, of me mm-hmm. as I am of Christ. 
Whoa, that's an amazing statement. And of course, we know the facts of his life, and he really gave up everything. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and he practiced what he preached, so people wanted to be the same way. So helpful. And it starts with, in the local church, it starts with the pastors, but it doesn't end there, too. You have elders, deacons, ministry leaders... All of us called to, because we're all thinking, you know, how, how can I make an impact? And But every person is a leader in one way or another, too. And every person can strive to uh, seek to set an example for others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's so helpful. Let, let's go ahead and tie this now to Betsy and I have four children, Dr. Murray, mm-hmm. just just as... So uh, do we. God bless yeah. you and Annette. Great yeah. family. Yeah. We have four kids. We are wondering... How can we influence our kids and grandkids to think bigger than the American dream? I know this is this is an area that Betsy and I think about a lot. You know, of course you you want to, you want to get your kids Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and you do all that and and again it's it's that challenge to be in the world but not of the world. And one time I heard a Christian leader say too many Christians are of the world but they're not in the world. <laughs> We look like the world but then we're not actually out there uh you know sharing Jesus with others but can you relate this to parenting and grandparenting specifically to those areas? Be glad to. Um, let me start with an illustration. A friend of mine, his name is Ronnie Stevens. He was the pastor of a church in Moorhead City, North Carolina. A missionary came to speak in his church, uh, gave a powerful message. After the service was over, it was an evening service. They went over to Ronnie's house, the pastor's house, to have a little snack. And Ronnie said to the missionary speaker, I hope and pray that some of my children will become missionaries. Mm. Mm. And the speaker said, well, I can tell you one way that you can guarantee that they will. And he said, how's that? And he said, go yourself and take them with you. Mm. Mm. And that was the call of God on Ronnie Stevens' life. And he left his church and took his wife and kids to Russia as a missionary. Wow. And so and so his kids did become missionaries because they went with dad and mom, you know. Yeah. So that's just a an illustration, but yeah. what I'm saying is we again as parents need to model to our children what we're asking them to be in the way of values and yeah. so forth. So um, uh, we uh, as a couple have tried uh, intentionally to model to our children what eternal values are and what's really important. So let me just give one little illustration. And this is, this is something that really grieves me. I am grieved by how many Christian homes and how many Christian workers' homes, including pastors and missionaries, do not have a daily family altar. What I mean by that is they do not have an intentional daily time when they as a family stop everything and dad and mom with the kids get out the Bible, read the Holy Word of God, discuss it together, apply it to their lives, and then pray together as a family. Mm. You know, when, uh, when Robertson McCulkin was the president of Columbia International University, he traveled all around the country and did what we call Great Commission Workshops. And they took anonymous polls of Christian people in churches just like Northeast Press and so forth. And um, one of the questions they asked on that poll, and they did it in 400 churches, so they had a very good sampling. One of the questions they asked was, do you and your husband or you and your wife ever pray together? 
and only 1% of the respondents said that they, as husbands and wives, ever pray together as a couple about anything except, thank you, Lord, for the food. Hmm. Wow. Wow. And yeah. so I, I think that's the starting point. And if, if our four kids could be in here today, they would tell you that the most formative thing we did with them as parents to give them eternal values was to have that intentional non-negotiable, and it was non-negotiable. And you know what? Sometimes our kids didn't like it. Sometimes they're like, can't we skip prayers tonight? Can't we skip family <laughs> devotions? You know, we want to go yeah, to this yeah, or go to yeah. that and, and so forth. Or they'd say, we're going to have some of our friends over for supper. Do we have to have devotions? And we'd say, mm-hmm. doesn't matter whether they're friends here or not, we're yeah. going to do it. Yeah. And, and we didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like heavy because we made it very interesting. We did games and stories, and I had a ukulele, and I'd get it out, and we'd sing oh, Bible verses, and, awesome. you know, just make it as, because kids are kids, and they have short attention yep, spans, yep, but yep. we did it every day. In fact, it was so non-negotiable that my wife sometime would call me during the day, and she'd say, honey, we're going to have to move supper up a half hour tonight, and I'd say, why is that? She said, because if we're still going to have family devotions, we've got to have supper a half hour early because Heather has a swim meet after supper. Mm-hmm. And she won't wow. be able to get to the swim meet and us still have devotions unless we eat supper a half hour early. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was awesome. And so she reinforced it. And you know, I didn't have to fight with my wife over it. She didn't yeah. have to fight with me. We just said, this yeah. is really important. So that's just one example. The other, another example is how we spent our money. Mm-hmm. We did not spend our money on luxury items. We live very frugally. One, one reason we did was because we didn't get much. <laughs> we, uh, when we were on the mission field, we had a very minimal salary. And you know yeah. what? We didn't even think about that. All we, all we were thinking about was, well, we've got food on the table and a roof over our head, thank the Lord, you yeah. know, and yeah. clothes yeah. on our backs. And, and, and in fact, that's what Matthew 6 says, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you just need to thank the Lord for those things and, and not worry and seek first the yeah. kingdom of God yeah. and his righteousness and all these things yeah. will be added. And they were not to excess, but they were. And so we were very happy. Yeah. And I think our kids saw that and saw how happy we were with the, with the little that we got. Mm-hmm. And they realize that, hey, you can be happy and not have to have everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love the intentionality of setting aside that time mm-hmm. to really pour into your kids because it's so easy as parents, you know, our kids are still fairly young. It's so easy to just say, all right, on to the next thing. We got to press through homework. We got to press through activities. Got to keep bedtime on, on schedule. Yeah, it's, um, it's so easy to forget what's important and just to be swept along with the tide of, um, the pragmatic needs of the day, but to remember to set that side uh, aside the time to really devote to um, teaching your children what's important. That's yeah. an investment. Yeah, it really is, and that's when that's when they can ask you the big questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the biggest, deepest questions that our kids had came out during family devotions. Mm. Daddy, what does it mean in the Old Testament when it says an evil spirit from the Lord came upon King Saul? How are you going to answer that question? Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, when, when you get questions like that from your children, you shouldn't um, rebuke them for mm. asking a hard question, mm. nor should you make up an answer. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the best answers we as parents can tell our kids when they ask us a hard question about spiritual things is to say, honey, I don't know. Mm. But if you give me a little bit of time, 
I'll study it a little bit more and we can come back and talk yeah. about it. What that answer does to your children is says, my parents are honest. Hmm. My parents have integrity because they don't know the answer to that. And they told me that they were willing to admit it, but they're also willing to work hard to see if they can find the answer. Mm-hmm. So that, and one night we were having, we always would pray as a family around the table too. We'd have each, each child pray and so forth. And um, so we were having a drought and it hadn't rained for like, weeks, months, and, and the farmers were really suffering. And so Heather, our oldest, prayed, Lord, we pray that you would send rain tomorrow. And when she said that, Frankie, her little brother, right in the middle of her prayer, shouted out, no! And we all stopped. And, we, and everybody opened their eyes, and I looked at Frankie, and I said, Frankie, why in the world would you say that in the middle of Heather's prayer? He said, because I have a baseball game tomorrow. <laughs> so then we had a discussion about, okay, so should we ask the Lord to stop the drought? Or should we ask the Lord to not make it rain so Frank can have his... And I said, look, this is what we need to do. We just need to say to the Lord, Lord, you can do anything. So we're going to just trust you. The farmers need the rain. Frankie would like to play his ball game. May your will be done, and we'll just thank you for whatever you do. You know what happened? The next morning, it rained for the first time in months, and by noon it had stopped, and it was dry enough for the ball game. Oh, how funny. <laughs> so God answered both of yeah. their prayers. How oh, awesome is that? That's incredible. That's amazing. You know, Paul says in one place, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much we believe that, including I'm thinking of myself how, here, you know, mm-hmm. to take that verse quite literally. If mm-hmm. we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is a good place to, to kind of wrap up here. But as before we, before we formally finish the episode here. Any final comments on this topic from you, Dr. Murray, or from you, Betts? Uh, no, except to say that that we need to bring this back to ourselves and not mm-hmm. talk about the American culture as if That's it's right. something yeah. out there yeah. that yeah. we can That's criticize, great. but we're not a part yep. of it because mm-hmm. we really are a part of it. Yep. And it really does, uh, honestly, mm-hmm. it draws you in you, without you even thinking about it. I mean, mm-hmm. you just yep. you just kind of uh, start thinking the way the people around you are thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and so it is a battle. It does take discipline to resist that pull, that gravitational pull of materialism and of... Um, being bound by thinking just in terms of time and not what really lasts forever. Mm. And so uh, I would just encourage anybody listening to this to um, not think about how bad the American culture is, but think about how can I be a biblical Christian in, in a culture that is materialistic, that is prosperous, and how can I be the person that God wants me to be? Mm. And just look for intentional ways to put that into practice. Amen. Mm. Mm. Betsy, any comments from you? I am so um, so grateful that you've been here today, Dr. Murray, just to share your wisdom with us. And as you said, it's just a reminder to consider the the different things in our lives, not to just kind of go along with the flow, but to actually put intentionality behind the way that we live and to hold our lives critically to examine them and say, does this line, does my life line up? Am I walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, as it says mm-hmm. in it's Philippians? Just to, to really take a critical look at the way that we live our lives and what we value 
Yeah. I might say one other thing, which is a whole different, su another subject, but it's involved in this, and that is our most valuable commodity is not our money, it's our time. Mm. And so wow. um, all the years that we were raising a family and everything, my wife and I would deliberately take three days every winter to go away. We got a babysitter and we'd go away and we would evaluate how we had spent our time over the last 365 days and how we were going to spend our time for the next year. Oh, I love that. And, wow. and it was a really uh, time of honestly assessing and um, we're just so grateful for what the Lord showed us through that. And how we spend our time is just as important as how we spend our money. That's right. Wow. Okay, I think we're going to have to have you back. <laughs> One final comment from me. I really appreciate uh, you bringing in how integral Annette has been in all of this and how you guys have worked as a team and just the importance of husbands and wives being united, being having the same spirit, same desires mm -hmm. um, in terms of following the Lord. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. It's really, really been a pleasure speaking with you. And we have a segment on this show that we like to do called What Are You Reading? And Betsy and I, or our guests, like to share you know, a book that we've been reading recently. So is there a book that uh, you'd like to share? Yes. Uh, I'm gonna, can I mention two? Oh, um, yeah. Okay. The first one, maybe 30 years ago, uh, the publication Christianity Today mm -hmm. uh, interviewed uh, 20 of the top Christian leaders of that time about their reading habits and asked them what their favorite books were. It was amazing how many of them had the same favorite book. Mm. And I'm not going to go into that right now. But one of the things they said, they all said, without you know, knowing ahead of time what they were going to say, they all said they all read a lot of books, but there's a few books they read a lot of times. Hmm. And there's one book in my life that I have read at least once every two years for the past 40 years, hmm. and that is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It is a hmm. profound book on the attributes of God that has profoundly... Um, formed my biblical worldview of God and everything. I mean, if God is God, then everything has to be interpreted in terms of who he is. Mm. And wow. it is a great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, so mm. I highly recommend it. Another book I recommend is the autobiography of Ravi Zacharias, who many people wow. hear on the radio okay. and so forth, and it's called Walking from East to West. It is a great book, and I highly recommend it. Mm, that sounds like a good wow. one. Wow. Okay, we've got a couple that we will absolutely have to read. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. really good. Well, this has been an absolute delight. Dr. George Murray, uh, retired president of CIU, but still traveling extensively, um, giving your days, you and Annette, to the cause of the kingdom, and we thank you. Yes, thank we you. We thank you for all that, that you all are doing for the Lord, and thank you so much for joining us today. And Betsy, can you... Remind our audience how to rate, review, subscribe to Intersect Where Church Meets Culture. Yeah, we would love for you uh, to come find us listeners on Apple Podcasts or on, on Google Play, on our website. Our website is uh -huh. Podcasts. Send us an email if you have any feedback on our episode today. Yep. Join our Facebook group. Yes. Our uh, email address is intersect at anyprez.com. We do have a new Facebook group we would love for you to join. Come find us. It's uh, called Intersect Podcast of NEPC. So come find us there or on Instagram at Intersect Podcast. All right, everybody. Remember that Jesus is indeed better than the American dream. 
and we hope to see you next time.